0: To Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Krista Laser, Assistant Professor of Law, Intellectual Property and Innovation at Cleveland Marshall College of Law. We will discuss her work on blockchain and NFTs. So welcome back to the show, Krista.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah,
0: pleasure's all mine. Um, so for listeners who might not already be familiar with you and, and your work. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your background, um, sort of where are you coming from and uh, sort of how did you become interested in the kinds of, of, of issues that you're working on in your scholarship these days?
1: Great, so I spent about nine years practicing intellectual property litigation at law firms in DC before switching into teaching about two years ago my scholarship is influenced a lot by what my drive was to become a professor which is and my drive to become an ip lawyer when i was in undergrad i was working in biochemistry and i wanted an opportunity to not spend my entire life for focusing on one particular issue but actually be able to learn about all the different new innovative areas when they came out so when i decided to go become a lawyer in the IP space, I thought that would give me the opportunity to have access to a lot of new innovation. So I always thought that keeping up with innovation was a critical component of that role. When I worked in the trial space, the trial litigation space in intellectual property, I was able to work on things like cell phone patents, microprocessors, pharmaceuticals, but I started to notice that many of my friends from, for example, the old Google Plus days and things like that, were getting interested in blockchain. I had one friend in particular that starting in 2014 was telling me, I need to get into this, I need to get into this, and I thought he was nuts. But then the years go by and it becomes more and more common. I started thinking about, well, should I start doing a mining operation of any kind? I started looking into that. I get busy with a trial, forget about it. And then the year goes by, the price goes up. And then starting in seven, 2017, I finally said, okay, I'm gonna get into this. So starting in 2017, I finally decided to get into it. And I bought a little bit of Bitcoin and a little bit of Ethereum. And I thought, I'll just watch it, see how it goes. And I left it alone for a while. The market goes up. I thought, this is great, fantastic. The market crashes down. (laughs) And then I thought, okay, well, can't do anything with it now. I'll just hold on to it. A couple more years go by. People start looking at other uses of blockchain technology. And I start hearing about NFTs. So then at that point, I I had become a professor. And I thought, now my role of keeping on top of innovation is even more critical. Because I'm going to be teaching the next generation of people that are coming into this field of intellectual property. And they're going to be looking to me for guidance about what areas of law they should look into, what areas of technology they should keep up with. So I thought I have an obligation to learn more about this. And I went and just started learning everything I could. I ended up doing a faculty talk, one of my first semesters here at the school, just an internal faculty talk, where I went over the current law on NFTs, and at that time it was very, very slim. It was basically, okay, it is copyright infringement if you copy someone's artwork and make it an NFT. And that was, <laughs> that was pretty much all that was out there. Now it's way more complex. I mean, multiple years have gone by since then, and the marketplace has changed dramatically. It is now no longer just a piece of artwork. We have profile images, we have projects that are invested in by serious investors where they think that they're gonna actually generate profit from selling compilations of NFTs, where people try to get consumers to invest in their NFTs it's a very different marketplace than it was two years ago when the only concern was, are you copying somebody's art?
0: So a lot of law professors, for better or for worse, have little or no actual practice experience. Uh, I kind of wonder if you could talk a little bit about how, if at all, your experience as an IP lawyer and as an IP litigator, has informed your legal scholarship and maybe specifically informed your approach to thinking about blockchain and and NFTs?
1: Yeah, I think that being a litigator taught me everything that I needed to know about what mattered in scholarship. There's very different views of thinking about scholarship. One way is to say that you are in a dialogue with your fellow professors. And sometimes that can be very valuable, but sometimes that can also be limiting. Another way to think about the value of scholarship is to say that you have a moral obligation to keep up with whatever the most important issues are going to be for society in the field that you're dealing with. So in the context for me, I focused a lot of my time on both patents and false advertising and we'll be able to circle back to this when it comes to NFTs because my advertising work influences a lot of my interest in NFTs. But with patents in particular, many of my previous pieces of scholarship were informed by difficulties that I saw for my clients when I was in practice. Issues like how civil procedure and patents interact. People don't really realize in the law professor scholarship world how important those issues can be But if you can imagine knocking out an entire claim from being litigated because somebody has one view of estoppel and the judge has a different view of estoppel, that's really important to litigants. It doesn't generate enough scholarly attention. So that's another area that I'm writing in, an amicus brief that I'm working on there um, coming up pretty soon. But when it came to the NFT space, I noticed that when I was in practice, many of the areas that was defense side. Many of the areas where our clients faced issues were around advertising of consumer products, but now we see with the NFT market that there are different types of goods that basic consumers are putting their money into. They're not just buying toothpaste, they're not just buying food items, they're also buying things that they think are going to generate value and investment for them. So you have an entirely new area of potential need for consumer protection that comes out. And the primary agency and agency rules that I was dealing with when I dealt with my consumer products, class action defense work, was the FTC and false advertising under FTC standards. But as we'll talk about when we get to questions about regulation, there's a lot of interesting questions about who should be regulating this kind of marketplace
0: so your your practice experience was significantly in intellectual property and intellectual property adjacent areas and i yeah. know a lot of your scholarship is as well there's a lot of talk in the nft space around intellectual property uh, sort of how would you characterize from a ip litigator and ip professors perspective, sort of the nature of this talk that's taking place, what you think people are getting right and wrong, and maybe what, if anything, they're missing and ought to be
1: thinking about? Thanks for that question. Yes, there are so many interesting issues of intellectual property that the people who are involved in the NFT marketplaces and talking about the NFT marketplaces aren't talking about. I mentioned that some of the early case law was around whether you could take somebody else's art and turn it into an NFT. And that's the obvious answer there is, no, you can't steal somebody else's artwork and make some money from it by doing turning it into something else. Generally, there are copyright issues that arise, but now there's also some interesting issues that are starting to pop up in the trademark space and in the patent space as well, because we have some companies that are filing patents all over the place with blockchain technology and there's a bunch of interesting questions about who would they accuse of infringement? Do they they accuse the nodes, the people that operate nodes of infringement every time they put a, an entry in the ledger? You know, what are we what are we going to do to enforce the patents that people have? Right now most companies that have patents in the blockchain space are not enforcing them. They're collecting them. Why are they collecting them? Probably for defense, but who knows? I don't know if you've seen that meme of uh, that there's the Star Wars characters. Have you seen this? And there's a meme, a very hilarious meme, and maybe we can link it for folks, of Star Wars characters where you see Natalie Portman's um, character looking lovingly at one of the other characters. And then that character says, I'm buying up patents. And she goes, defensively, right? And he looks at her pensively and she goes, defensively, right? Silence. And so this is kind of what's happening in the blockchain space when it comes to patents, that many companies haven't decided yet what they want to do with their patents. But I think that in about five to 10 years, this buildup of the creation and purchase of more and more patents in the space is eventually going to lead to somebody saying, some competitor has entered a space that I don't want them in. I'm going to use this to kick them out. Now that's their prerogative. They're creating a lot of interesting technological advancements, there's a lot of neat things to do with blockchain, you're entitled to get patent protection for that. I think it's going to be quite the bloodbath when people finally start asserting those patents that they've been collecting. And I think it will happen. I think it's going to happen in about five years, once the marketplace develops enough that there's a commercial incentive to pursue people for infringement.
0: I wonder, from a patent litigator's perspective, how strong do you think a lot of those patents are? I I just saw recently somebody filed a patent infringement action against... Coinbase, the context made me a little skeptical that they were gonna get anywhere with this, but I'm not a patent specialist the way that you are. Kind of as, as, as a, maybe in relation to that litigation specifically, but more generally when it comes to, to patenting in the space, like what do you see as the real kind of practical effectiveness mm-hmm. and enforceability of those patents?
1: Great question. We are at, in a point in the law in patents where we have this strange confluence of factors because on the one hand many of these patents perhaps under part- under the current law that the supreme court has decided there might be questions about their subject matter eligibility this is uh, under section 101 if something's an abstract idea or an algorithm then it's not entitled to protection. But you can find ways around that. You can apply non-routine, non-conventional methods to some abstract idea and be able to turn it into something that's potentially patentable. And so many of these patents, I'm sure they're written in such a way to try to get around that requirement, and that's why they're granted. Because they they find a way to say, we are able to beat the current standards of subject matter eligibility. And that said, we also at the same time have members of Congress, members of the patent bar, clamoring, saying we need to change Section 101 law, that the Supreme Court has made an unworkable test, that we cannot determine what is patentable right now under the current test. And many people, perhaps a lot of scholars and interest groups on certain sides, saying that the current subject matter eligibility tests led to marketplaces falling entirely because they originally relied upon the ability to have access to patent protection and after those Supreme Court cases, they no longer had access to that protection. I think that that confluence of factors will create a very unpredictable marketplace for those types of blockchain patents because it's uncertain whether they're going to be held valid if a court if they are challenged in court, and it is uncertain whether the standards for subject matter eligibility are going to change, when those changes will occur, and what they will change to. All of that is entirely unpredictable. You can, you can try to guess what members of Congress are thinking or what they will do in that regard, but then things change. The marketplace changes, the, the political will changes, and we won't know what's going to happen. So to be honest, I can't predict what's gonna happen. All I know is I'm pretty certain it's gonna be quite a bloodbath when it
0: does. (laughs) Well, so uh, I mean, obviously there's a lot that depends on Congress's willingness to respond to Mm -hmm. the kinds of um, uh, advocates who are looking for changes in patent subject matter eligibility. Uh, But assuming Congress doesn't act, and I could be wrong about this, so if I am, Mm -hmm. correct me, but a lot of them the patents that I saw or I'm aware of seem to sound very much in the kind of business methods Mm -hmm. sphere Mm -hmm. of patenting. And my impression is that historically, the Supreme Court has not been particularly sympathetic to business method patents. We've seen a lot of personnel change. I, I just wondered, do you have any thoughts on the viability going forward of this kind of category of patents if Congress doesn't step in to sort of constrain the court's ability to tighten Section 101
1: eligibility? So this is also a fascinating question that brings in so many other factors because in order for the Supreme Court, the current Supreme Court to issue rulings that are different on Section 101, it has to hear those cases. And we also see a shift right now with the Supreme Court not being willing to hear patent cases very much at all. We didn't have any patent cases last term. And I think with the with the more conservative majority, there's less of an incentive to hear patent cases. I have a paper talking about certiorari and patent cases that goes into this a little bit more. But I think that the political will changes. Patent cases used to be viewed as a safe case that you could take when nobody can make up their mind on a constitutional law issue and all the other cases, so you have a few patent cases come in the door. Now that there is a majority of one party at the Supreme Court, there's less of a need to hear those cases that are viewed as non-controversial. Paired with that, the Supreme Court now views subject matter eligibility as particularly controversial, in part because of the backlash that happened, but also because Congress has indicated that they're looking at acting in this space and whenever Congress indicates that they're going to act in a space, the Supreme Court generally tries to pull back a little bit until Congress makes up its mind. Now that could be for 10 years, I don't know. Maybe we'll see some more patent cases come up, but I don't think we're going to see ones about subject matter eligibility. I think we'll probably see ones more like the IPR estoppel one that I'm trying to get the amicus brief on. I don't think we're going to see another subject matter eligibility case. My guesstimate would be for 50 years, unless unless the Congress decides that they're going to change the law in that space. I think in many other areas where historically, where the Supreme Court has acted in patent law in a particular space, like indefiniteness, for example, they will go sometime, create a rule that they think is fairly firm. And if if that rule seems firm, they're gonna stick with it and keep denying those cases until everything else looks really messed up and that's what they did with definiteness. They waited 50 years to decide a definiteness case until the federal circuit had gone 10 years applying a case that was basically unworkable. So I think that's what's going to happen with, with eligibility. I think we're going we're gonna to see exactly the same law. It's going to stay there until Congress acts. And if Congress takes 10 years to act, it's going to be the same for 10 years. I don't think we're going to see another Supreme Court case on eligibility, which means we're stuck with the Alice test. We're stuck with this idea that that courts are going to have to wrestle with what, is, what, are, what are the things that are being added to this abstract concept. Are these routine and conventional? How are we differentiating this from an abstract idea? And it's a very difficult test to apply. I think especially when it comes to something like the blockchain space, where you have problems both that it might be an algorithm and that it might be a business method. There are lots of potential avenues for subject matter ineligibility. But there's also situations where those companies that are getting patents in the space are contributing a lot to the core technology when they make these patents. They're coming up with new uses of blockchain. They're coming up with, with new ways to generate income from it. They're coming up with new ways to apply it to different types of um, different industries, different types of businesses, not just the current marketplace of buying and selling Ethereum or Bitcoin we're seeing a lot of different uses that can come up in these patents. So I I think you'll see some that make it through this subject matter eligibility test, but it's going to be unclear, it's going to be uncertain, and the Supreme Court's not going to resolve it or fix it when any of these questions come up and they're not clear.
0: Mm-hmm. Shifting gears a little yeah. bit. Yeah. In the NFT space in particular, there's I think understandably been a lot of conversation primarily, well, they talk about intellectual property, but I think in most cases what they mean is copyright. Mm -hmm. And in particular, there's a big debate between NFT collectors and to some, but I think lesser degree artists as well, as to whether what makes an NFT especially desirable is the associated copyright interest that may or may not come along with it. And then the other side, there's a group of people arguing in favor of Creative Commons Zero, the sort of place the images associated with NF- NFTs in, in the public domain, and that this is kind of the center of gravity of the NFT marketplace and is most consistent as well with the kind of decentralization ethos and general kind of attitude toward open access that I think prevails in a lot of the blockchain kind of adjacent industries in general. I wonder if you have thoughts on that conversation, like are there things that people are missing or getting right? How do you see this discussion resolving itself? And do you think it's likely to kind of break down one way or the other or be a kind of a mix at the end of the day?
1: Well, so the very one interesting point about the way that people currently buy NFTs is that I think for many projects, buyers don't understand what intellectual property rights they're getting with the project. Some of them don't care. Some of them think that they're getting copyright when they're not some of them think they're getting a license when they may or may not. Some of them think they're going to get licenses to use the mark in other contexts like in trademark in trademark contexts when they almost certainly are not. So when it comes to the copyright space, I think what we need and this is another project that I'm working on slower than I'd like to be, but working on is we need a clear understandable license so that like the Creative Commons licenses, people that purchase NFTs can know what it is that they're getting in plain human readable language. They need to understand with a visual or with something simple, that what they're getting is, for example, a license to use their particular PFP, for example, in commercial uses, or that they're getting some limited license to use it for non-commercial uses people need to know what they're getting and they need to be able to do that without going into the terms of service for a project and reading through it and having a legal background enough to understand what the scope of that license is. Because most people that are buying NFTs, they don't know how to read those licenses. They're relying on some lawyer on Twitter who says this is what the license says. That is not workable for the long-term success of the marketplace. If we want the marketplace to succeed, we need information. And this is something that we talked about a little bit when you just did your talk uh, here at Cleveland State earlier today, which we really appreciated, was the way that these marketplaces are driven in part by information. And I think that right now prices are still inflated slightly by misunderstandings and lack of information. And even if that information is disclosed, it's disclosed in a way that's not understandable enough to influence the market pricing. So what I would recommend that we do in the NFT space to help people understand this is first education. Have lawyers, law professors, and others tell people you don't get the copyright when you buy the NFT. I think people in the marketplace are just starting to catch on to that. But then they're confused by the projects that say you're going to have rights to it. They think they have full rights. They think they have trademark. They think they have an assignment. They don't. They have a limited license. The terms of that limited license are described in the terms of service for that project. Now, some of the projects that have offered broad commercial licenses, without compensation or royalties, have been very successful projects. I think part of that is because when you offer those types of licenses to your purchasers, you allow them to build community more, and building community increases popularity. So that can help to drive the price. It might be good for people that make those projects to offer more licenses. But for those that don't, we need to tell consumers that they don't do that. I think one way to do that is to have the industry self-regulate to have more clear human readable licenses like we have for Creative Commons. Some projects are doing Creative Commons zero, that's fine, but that's not available or appropriate for most projects that want to derive revenue from, from their projects.
0: So one thing that I've noticed is a tendency of a lot of people in the NFT space to use the blanket term intellectual property yeah. or just rights in general, when they're talking about the the rights and in intangible goods mm-hmm. that they think they may or may not be getting. And primarily it seems to me that they're kind of often conflating copyright based uses mm-hmm. and trademark type. Absolutely uses in an an often unhelpful and confusing way. I agree. In a lot of ways, I feel like the copyright side of things is complicated but easier to kind of understand and hash out, and the answers are not that difficult mm-hmm. to provide. I find the trademark side a lot more puzzling, mm-hmm. both as a kind of technical matter, but also as a matter of kind of predicting how it will play out, specifically insofar as, uh, you know, a significant number of NFT collectors uh, value highly what they see as the ability to commercialize their mm-hmm. NFT, and primarily what they want to u- use it as is a branding yeah. mechanism. And to a greater or less degree, it seems like some projects are letting them do that. Mm-hmm. Uh but i wonder how that's going to actually work in practice because the reality is the marks are often not that different in fact some of them are identical Mm -hmm. to each other right and i'm not sure like how distinctive they are in relation to each other Mm -hmm. as opposed to being distinctive within the nft ecosystem Mm -hmm. as a whole and i only starting to see people doing nft mark registrations Mm -hmm. as it were i kind of wonder you as a litigator with practical experience in this very area like what do you see coming down the pike how is this going to work
1: yeah this is a fascinating space too because it's an area where i think the rights are in fact clear the project owners have established certain branding that typically they have trademark rights over, and they can pursue those trademark rights and sue those people using it into the ground, even the ones that have purchased an NFT from them. Do they wanna do it? Probably not. So it's not really a legal question at all. These projects are making a determination that they're not going to sue their customers. Now, there might be certain high value customers that they're gonna let get away with opening up a burger shop with their uh, NFT on it. Like a Board Ape NFT turned into a logo for a burger shop. They probably won't sue over that the first time it happens with a high profile person. But then when everybody else starts doing it, there might be some letters come out. Now Board Ape Yacht Club has a different ethos that maybe they're gonna do things differently. But I imagine that many of the other projects that are saying you own your IP in your NFT, they're gonna come chasing people when they start opening boutiques and burger shops and every other item under the sun with that branding. Because people are going to confuse, consumers are going to confuse those items as items that are being sold by the creator of that NFT project, not by an owner of that particular NFT. Once there's that confusion, there's the right to sue. So they can bring the lawsuit. They choose not to for business reasons. And I think that the way to ease confusion in this marketplace, in the trademark marketplace, is for there to be education campaigns. Like we had, for example, with Kleenex and Xerox and other major companies to avoid genericide. We might need those companies to go out and do education to match whatever it is that they want the outcome to be. If those projects want the outcome to be that they're going to maintain their trademark rights and they are going to be able to sue people who open up a boutique with their NFT from that project on it, then they need to be doing consumer education that delineates copyright from trademark. That says you have a copyright, but you can can put it on the front of a t-shirt, but you're not putting it on the tag. So that people understand the difference between the copyright and the trademark rights that are being conveyed. The way that it's being done right now, I think there's a potential for the marketplace and trademarks to run wild. And if brand owners don't start taking control of that, the marketplace is going to take over and decide for them. So I think education is the answer.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've noticed that at least a few large and popular projects mm-hmm. seem to be intending or at least implying that their their collectors have their blessing mm-hmm. to use the image associated with their NFT in a trademark way,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right which for one thing, that's, that seems strange, right If you've got 10,000 images, yeah. right, you've got 10,000 potential NFT owners, mm-hmm. That means licensing a trademark used to potentially 10,000 different people, which correct me if I'm wrong, that seems very-
1: You can't control the quality of the product, so you're not allowed to license it that way, right?
0: Yeah, that seems unusual to me. So that's the first problem. The second problem then for me is what happens when people actually start doing it, because I could understand the first market entrant in a product category mm-hmm. using a particular NFT mm-hmm. image to be able to convey some kind of
1: meaningful distinctiveness. But, but if there's confusion between them, mm-hmm. yeah. Like the
0: what second, happens when multiple people in the same right. product category start using mm-hmm. images from the same NFT collection? Yeah. The distinctiveness issue here seems to me mm-hmm. to be palpable.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and the interesting thing is, it's not like any of those individuals have have an assignment of the trademark rights. They have a license. So when someone who owns a PFP image goes and uses it to open a burger shop, and then the next person with PFP number 475 opens another burger shop, and burger shop one sues burger shop two, what are the factors they're going to consider? Well, one of the things they might say is, you're not an exclusive licensee, you don't have the right to sue. So these individuals don't have the right probably don't have the right to bring a lawsuit against burger shop number two. Who has that right? Board 8 Piat Club. Is Board 8 Piat Club gonna sue burger shop number two? No. So they're allowed to use it. The the purchasers of those NFTs are allowed to use it in a trademark way, but they won't be able to sue each other. Then you might have some questions around, well, maybe they're not an exclusive licensee of that trademark, but that trademark isn't in the class of goods of burger shops, it's in the class of goods of selling NFTs, selling artwork. So if Board Ape Yacht Club never took advantage of using Board Ape Yacht Club marks as marks for burger shops, for clothing, for boutiques, for all of that, then maybe, maybe that person who first uses it for burger shops can go establish secondary meaning and say this particular image for burger shops is independently entitled to trademark protection and they they're going to register the trademark. Board Ape Yacht Club might not be very happy with that. Right? Because they're taking something that Board Ape Yacht Club created and then the person who purchased that NFT is now getting an entirely separate, uncontrollable piece of intellectual property, their very own trademark. And then they can go sue Burger Shop Number Two. So then you have questions: Are there is there consumer confusion between Burger Shop One and Burger Shop Two with at PFP Number One versus PFP Number Four Eighty Seven? There probably would be confusion because probably anything that resembles one of the Board Apes is going to lead consumers to believe that it's made by the company that makes Board Apes. Now. It doesn't matter if the customers think that it's made by the Board Apes company. If it's actually made by the person who has trademark on Burger Shop Number One, used for Board Apes, it's still something that consumers believe is coming from a particular source. It's entitled to trademark protection. So perhaps then, owner of Burger Shop Number One, is going to be able to sue everybody who opens burger shops for using any Board Yacht Club NFT. That's probably going to be the outcome. So if The owners of nft projects don't control their brand and don't have those education campaigns don't engage in licensing where they control the quality of the product then they're going to lose the right to control their those nfts for use as marks in other spaces they're not going to be the first user the creator of that nft project is not going to be the first user in that class of goods and they won't be able to control the mark So I I think it's a wild west unless the owners of the NFT projects start getting together and saying we're going to educate consumers and we're going to educate purchasers on what it is that they're getting. It's in their interest to make that education campaign happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but from like your professional advising perspective, right? I think there's the impression a lot of people have that the brand effectively is this particular image associated with my NFT. Mm-hmm. And I have an exclusive license to use that as a mark, but I look at it and I'm like, the brand is Bored Ape Yacht Club. The,
1: right. the brand
0: is CryptoPunks. It's not yep. that particular image. Oh
1: no, not at all. But Board Ape Yacht Club and the creators of CryptoPunks, oh, you know, Yuga Labs and the creators of CryptoPunks, um, who, do you know, remember? Larva remember? Labs. Larva Labs, thank you. Um, Yuga Labs and Larva Labs, they might not have sold any goods in those classes of goods where people want to enter into the marketplace, and trademarks only apply to the class of goods where where the goods are sold with that mark. So those creators of the NFT projects, they don't really have anything to license out from a trademark perspective until they start entering that marketplace or licensing people to enter that marketplace and controlling how... the good is used and the mark is used. So maybe they should start doing that if they want to protect their trademarks a little further. But I think it will lead to some very interesting outcomes where burger shop owner number one is going to be be able to sue every other person who believes that they're allowed to open a burger shop using their PFP.
0: Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. But there's also big picture questions, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, a bunch of different regulators, especially the SEC, have been talking about their perspective on the cryptocurrency markets and on the NFT market, specifically to greater, lesser detail. I wonder if you have thoughts on sort of what we know so far about their efforts to regulate in this space, and sort of reading the tea leaves, what you see come down the pike
1: mm-hmm. from
0: the SEC, CFTC, you name it. Yeah.
1: Right now it's, a, it's an interesting regulatory space because agencies are fighting over who's gonna be the one to regulate this issue. And we don't really see that fighting directly so much as we see it in those agencies trying to craft actions and regulations that would encompass this space without without necessarily having a public-facing discussion about who should actually take ownership, which agency should actually take ownership over it. My personal belief is that I think the SEC and the FTC in combination can address different aspects of these problems. I know we have very different views on the potential role of the SEC in this space. But I think that many NFT projects are in fact operating in sometimes unethical ways to try to derive their income from encouraging ordinary, unaccredited consumers to invest in their projects without giving them the information they need, without those consumers being savvy enough to understand the risk of those investments, without adequately disclosing the risk of the investments. I think that those projects should be regulated by the SEC in some way. And I think it would be perfectly fair for them to be regulated as securities. Many of the the projects that are, and I'm not talking about one of one NFTs, I think those ones are less likely to be taking advantage of large groups of consumer investors. But there's a real risk when it comes to the PFP, your profile image projects that have 10,000 10,000 NFTs as part of them. And they're telling people, they're advertising, buy this NFT, you, you'll be able to get on the white list and get it at 0.2 ETH. It's gonna go to 10 ETH um, when it gets to the, uh, the public floor on OpenSea. These are promises that these companies are making that people are going to derive a certain profit from their investments. And people that are not accredited investors are clamoring for those types of returns and hoping and praying that they're going to be the ones that are going to benefit from that. They're putting their hard-earned money into these projects, thinking that they're going to be able to finally be okay, that they're finally going to be able to make something from their investments, that they're not going to have to go through the difficulty of the stock market investing with its slower returns. So consumer investors are being taken advantage of. By many of these projects, and I do think that it's the role of the SEC to go after them. I think the SEC should go after them, I think they should go after them quickly, I think they should go after them hard, and they should tell these projects, you cannot advertise that you are going to get a consumer in at 0.2 ETH and they're going to make 10 ETH in a week. You start doing that, we're going to go after you hard. That's what they should be doing. But these projects are popping up over and over and over, taking the money, dropping random images in a pile of 10,000 and leaving with the money. Now many more savvy consumers are making choices about which NFT projects to invest in. They're saying we're only going to invest in projects that are fully doxed, as some of them say, <laughs> where we have the opportunity to figure out who's running it, we know, we know who we can go after if things go wrong. That's some protection, but it's not the kind of protection that you get from a fully regulated market. I don't think it's fair to consumer investors that the SEC is not taking action. Now, I think we also have areas where the FTC should take action as well. And that includes making promises, false advertising claims. If you see an advertisement on Instagram saying that somebody should get a whitelist, you should buy a whitelist into this project because we're gonna make 10 ETH on it next week, that's also a false advertising claim. And I think the FTC should be going after that more as well. But I think that can only be done on such a targeted level. I think that the SEC is the one that needs to take the big picture role here and say we're going to crack down hard on projects that are taking advantage of consumer investors. Now, there may be some projects that are on the line, some projects that really do just wanna create community, that really do just wanna make art that really are offering something, something of utility to people, but they are the rare exception. Perhaps the SEC should exercise discretion and say, as an umbrella, most of these projects constitute securities. We're going to go after the ones that are misleading investors, that are taking advantage of unaccredited investors, that are telling somebody's grandmother that they should go put all their money into their project and then leaving. That's happening in a lot more situations than people that are savvy in this market think. If the SEC goes after those people and makes a prosecutorial choice not to go after the projects that are genu- generating genuine community, maybe that balance will work out. I don't think we need new rules, which I think I think we might disagree with each other on.
0: So do you see signs that the SEC or F- TC are kind of trending in the direction that you're suggesting. Sort of yeah. like, what do you expect to see happen based on what we know so far, mm-hmm. you know, from agency pronouncements and our mm-hmm. general sense of what the agency thinks is important and how mm-hmm. they usually react yeah. in these kind of scenarios?
1: So I, I think that based on the agency pronouncements, the SEC is trying to set itself up to say, They have the authority to go after these projects. The SEC has made statements that although it doesn't think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are things that it needs to regulate as securities, the SEC has made a choice to go after any coins other than Bitcoin and Ethereum, and it's leaving open the door to go after NFT projects as securities as well. It's setting the stage for the actions that are to come, by signaling to the marketplace we are going to cast a wide net and we have the authority. They haven't taken enough actions against ordinary fraudulent NFT projects, I think, to broadcast to the marketplace that they are going to make a sweeping effort to get rid of all of them so that consumers aren't misled anymore. I think that's what they need to do, maybe they'll start to do that soon. I think by signaling that they have the authority to go after all these things, they're setting the groundwork for doing that soon. I'm hoping that that's going to happen in the next few years, but we're seeing them right now focus on the bigger companies. We also have a lot of issues with broker-dealer regulations and the SEC deciding that maybe it's an easier target to go after companies for broker-dealer violations instead of setting precedent now of what constitutes a security for some of these NFT projects.
0: Amazing. Well, Krista, thanks so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a ton talking with a fellow academic interested in this space who has a a breadth and depth of litigation experience that I don't, so I, I really appreciate it.
1: Well, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I don't get an opportunity to have this kind of creative back and forth that I love to have with many other people so I really appreciate being able to talk with you about it.